It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tortoise. Hello, I'm James Harding. We're doing this news meeting remotely. I'm in Wadston in Buckinghamshire. I think Katie Gunning and Jess Winch are in our newsroom in London. And Stephen Pinker, accompanied by the sound of the seagulls of Boston, is joining us from Boston. It's the week ending Friday the 22nd of September from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. Rishi Sunak has defended his decision to row back on some key climate change policies. I said I wanted to change the way we do politics, want to change the direction of the country. That started with a decision yesterday to take a proportionate, pragmatic and realistic approach to meeting our ambitions on net zero. Rupert Murdoch has now announced he is stepping down as the chairman of Fox Corporation and Fox News. India appears to have halted visa services in Canada part of an escalating diplomatic dispute between the countries. The 20-month climb in interest rates is over as the Bank of England leaves borrowing costs at five and a quarter percent. As I said, I'm joined by Jess Winch, editor at Tortoise. Jess, good to see you. Hello. And Katie Gunning, uh, who comes fresh from producing a long investigation into Prince William and Rupert Murdoch. Hi, James. Good that you've been allowed out of the podcast studio for even a few moments. Uh, you're back in now. And delighted that we're joined by Professor Stephen Pinker. Stephen, thanks so much for making the time to be with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Stephen, I'm sure you've had to deal with quite a few Purple Prose introductions before, so just bear with for yet another one. Um Many, many people will know you and your work, um, particularly forcing us to rethink the way we think. Um, at your work as a professor at the Department of Psychology at Harvard, everything that you've written in the New York Times, in the uh, Atlantic, in the many books, the one that I think was a liberation for me was Enlightenment Now, made me think really differently about the age and the times that we live in. Um, but of course, we've spoken before about the news and about the judgments that people in my line of work as a journalist make and take for granted as sensible judgments. And the reason that in this news meeting we've tried to make a virtue of bringing people in is to challenge the groupthink around the news. The tortoise itself, if you like, a slow newsroom is itself intended to be an argument with the way in which much of the rest of the news makes decisions. But then, of course, we slip into our own groupthink. And I hope you will weigh in and challenge the judgments that we're making and that we can actually have a broader conversation about the idea of news judgment itself. With that, let's get started. 
Um, each person is going to pitch their story that they think should lead the news. And at the end, I'll try and make a judgment on the running order. Jess, why don't you go first? A murder in Surrey. Casey. The Prince and the Press Baron, William's secret deal with Rupert Murdoch's newsgroup newspapers. And Stephen, what would you pitch to lead the news? Well, let's see. Last year, capital punishment was eliminated in Malaysia, Zambia, Central African Republic, Papua New Guinea, and Equatorial Guinea. Child marriage was abolished in Philippines and Nigeria. Homosexuality was decriminalized in Singapore and Antigua. Same-sex marriage was legalized in Cuba and Mexico. That's in human Hang on, rights. Stephen. Do I get the strong sense that you're cheating here? That's not one single story. It's, it's just a rat-a-tat-tat of good news. They are positive developments. They are underreported. And they are not feel-good fluff stories. This is not like uh, puppy befriends orangutan or... or Cop buys groceries for single mother. And, and just can I understand, your point is that this run of examples of human rights progress or action on the environment or progress on health, none of these things land, not because they're positive, but because they're incremental? Oh, I think there's some of each. So um, uh, many of the good things that happen on the planet are things, are trends that creep up by a few percentage points a year and compound, which can transform the world, but never generate a headline on a Thursday. So the world can be utterly transformed and people newsreaders can be completely unaware of it. Uh, someone once commented that if, if the news came out, say, once every 50 years, uh, the, the, the changes that would be reported would be very different from the ones that are reported, well, it used to be every day, now it's uh, every, every five minutes. We're going to come back, Stephen, because I think it'd be interesting just to take the example of Jess's story, a murder in Surrey, Katie's story, and then loop back and go, okay, well, Put that into the lens that you've got on news overall. Do these stories qualify in your mind or do they obscure the bigger development? So, Jess, why don't you start a murder in Surrey? Sure. So before I start, can I just make a quick clarification? Last week, I spoke about the financial crisis facing local councils in England, uh, pegged to Woking Council in Surrey, announcing a drastic programme of cuts. I should have made clear that Woking Council is currently controlled by the Liberal Democrats, but it was previously run for a long time by the Conservatives, which is when it accumulated the debts that it's now struggling with. So I'm happy to make that clear. Moving on from that one, I just, if you were in Woking last week in Surrey, I want you to step back, turn west, travel about 4,700 miles, because there's another Surrey in British Columbia, Canada. And that's where I want to focus this week. I'm going from very, very local to very, very global, because this is where uh, in June, a Canadian citizen linked to India's Sikh separatist movement was murdered. He was shot while he was getting into his car. And on Monday, Justin Trudeau, Canadian Prime Minister, said that his domestic intelligence agencies were actively pursuing credible allegations that Indian agents had been behind the murder. So effectively, Trudeau, very publicly in the Canadian Parliament, accused India of carrying out an assassination of one of its citizens on Canadian soil. And I think it's hard to overstate how significant this is. Uh, India and Canada have had tensions running for a very long time over the Canadian government, says the Indian government, sympathising with Sikh separatists who call for an independent homeland, which they call Khalistan in the Indian state of Punjab. Canada has denied this. It says it's got to respect um, free, free speech, uh, human rights that you know protect these activists from being able to express themselves. This 
accusation has really brought all those tensions to the surface. It is the first time that India, which has been accused of assassinations in its own region before, but never previously in a Western country that we know of. There have already been tit-for-tat expulsions of Indian and Canadian diplomats. India just uh, on Thursday morning suspended visa services for Canadian citizens. Uh, trade deals already been suspended. So this is having a real-world impact right now between those two countries. And it's uh, it's but it's much bigger than that. I kind of just I wanted to go for this story because this is the kind of story where you see the shifts in countries and shifts in relationships that have very big ripple effects for a long time. Uh, Canada is part of the G7. It is part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing you know, um, Group, which also includes the US and Britain. And it means that this very public accusation, which Trudeau may repeat when he addresses the UN, uh, is going to put the US and Britain on the spot because they have to decide whether to stand with Canada, a very long-standing ally, and how much sort of to, to step up to India, which both the US and Britain are courting incredibly hard at the moment because they want to counter Chinese influence in the region. So it's like a sort of us or them moment that the US and Britain will have to navigate. But I think the bottom line is that strategic partners don't murder each other's citizens. And if that stands up, I think, and if and Trudeau is under a lot of pressure now to release the evidence behind this claim, I just think it will provoke a kind of a big reassessment of these kind of relationships that shape the world. I found this story really fascinating, but largely because there were these three big things that I really don't understand about it. One is this idea of India conducting extrajudicial killings on the soil of foreign, supposedly allied countries. And this outfit that I'd not heard of, the Research and Analysis Wing, i.e. Their, their kind of operational side of um, the intelligence service, I saw a quote somewhere saying, India is the new Israel. And there's that question mark I've got, is that characterization remotely true? Then there's the point you make, which is the West, does it side with Canada or not? It hasn't really been vocal in its support of Trudeau against Modi. No, it's it? been it's very muted really so far. Both the UK and the US have been. That seems really interesting to me. And as you say, that seems to me to suggest something about the way in which they're willing to speak up against China, but not so much against India. That's curious. And then the third thing, which I don't understand at all, is the domestic politics in Canada of this as regards mm -hmm. Trudeau. There's a big Sikh community, isn't there, in yes, Canada? Yes, it's around 700,000 Sikhs in Canada. And it's a, I, think, I think there's four Sikhs in Trudeau's cabinet. It's a big domestic play in this. And there's, you know, domestic politics, a general election coming next year, isn't there? So just when you look at all of this, this story doesn't look like quite as clear cut as maybe Justin Trudeau would have you believe. India's come into Surrey, a suburb of Vancouver and killed someone. I think, first of all, no, this isn't a straightforward story. And I think that's partly what makes it such a good one. It's not clear cut. It is a story that will develop that I think Tortoise and other newsrooms should be taking seriously now and should be following. I think up until now, the strategy has been speak softly and carry a big trade deal. <laughs> Both countries have been very cautious about criticism of in, of Modi, despite the fact that there has been uh, a significant crackdown on um, media freedoms, uh, there are almost daily attacks on Muslims and religious minorities that is leading to accusations that democracy in India is under threat. But at the same time, India is 
uh, a growing economy. It is an incredibly important partner for the US and for Britain in the region. Stephen, what do you think? I appreciate your bigger point about things that are going ignored in the news. What about when something like this happens? Do you think this is just noise or do you think these things are important signals? Uh, no, it's more than noise. These are two major countries with a dispute that could spin out of control. It does remind you of a, what might sound like an, an anachronistic ideal, that ideally, as with any dispute, um, it would be best to bring in a disinterested third party, uh, a court, some international institution. Now, the United Nations originally is going to serve this role, but it's become somewhat of a joke because it's just... Um, the deliberations at the Security Council are just vetoed by one of the superpowers in the General Assembly. It just they just assemble uh, factions of allies. But just sort of thinking about what uh, what ideally we would like in a situation like this is that instead of each side um, threatening the other with uh, trade sanctions or trying to bring in uh, or or avoid out allies, uh, if it could be referred to some objective, disinterested, fact-finding organization that could adjudicate whether this really was an extrajudicial killing. Katie, what do you think about the India story? I'm really interested in that sense of what it means for Canada's friends. I think we're about to see a kind of delicate diplomatic dance play out and that we should stay with the story for that reason to see how how that unfolds. I'm also interested in, on on what it says about Modi's India, which I think is a story which is has been unfolding now for some time, but his increasing, it feels like increasing amounts of attacks on minorities in that country and his framing of India as a Hindu country um, and what that means for everyone else. All right, Jess, thank you. There's a lot more to learn on that. Katie, let's turn to yours, Prince William and Rupert Murdoch. So I'm going to bounce over to New York, which is where Prince William is. And yesterday he was on stage announcing the finalists for the Earthshot Prize. This is where people compete uh, for money to fund their innovative um, solutions to climate change. And the five final winners will all receive a million dollars each. And that money comes from wealthy benefactors. But what this story does, it also reminds us that it some of it may have come from somewhere else. This links to the existence of a legal deal between Prince William and news group newspapers who publish The Sun and the now defunct News of the World. So this is a, a deal shrouded in secrecy and which only emerged because of something that Prince Harry told the High Court in London earlier this year, just like a line in court filings, a sworn statement in which he said his brother William had settled his own claim with newsgroup newspapers for a very large sum of money. On the back of that, the palace didn't deny it, newsgroup newspapers didn't deny it. But the other interesting thing that happened was that nobody really pursued this story and it matters. And that's yeah, explain, explain why it matters. I'm, I'm, it's, it's interesting listening to you say that and then looking at Stephen and thinking to myself, does this play like some you know, only in the UK could we get so fascinated by the, you know, uh, deals between Prince William and Rupert Murdoch, you know, the relationship between Harry and William, you know, whether or not this feels very UK soap opera. Well, by the way, I'm, I'm Canadian, so I completely sympathise. I grew up <laughs> with the royals. 
So, so I'm not surprised <laughs> in the least. Thank you for your sympathy. <laughs> it matters. It matters because if our future head of state has accepted a financial agreement from news group newspapers and we don't know about it, we think we know the size of the agreement. Um, we think it was around a million pounds. Um, but we don't know what's involved. Does it involve an agreement for positive press or an agreement not to criticise? And I think the public should know that. Can, can we just do that a moment on that, Katie, the process? So you and Paul Caruana Galizia reported this, as I obviously know, but just tell me about the doors that you knocked on to try and get clarification on the nature of the settlement between William and News Corp. Well, news group newspapers didn't obviously want to expand on it. The palace, um, when we asked them about the the terms of the deal, the size of the deal, told us that we were very much in the terms of conjecture and wouldn't tell us anything else about it. So we went down some other avenues. And one quite interesting one that Paul followed up was, um, was he spoke to someone who'd been involved in in deals like these, who said that it's very likely that if there was if money changed hands, then it probably went to charity. Prince William runs a charity called the Royal Foundation. So Paul dug into their accounts, and in their accounts for 2020, there is a line which talks about a sum of money that appeared in the accounts, and it just says from a certain funder, of which £750,000 was to be earmarked for the Earthshot Prize and £350,000 to be uh, earmarked for the Early Years Foundation. Now, these are two charities that are very much Prince William and Kate's kind of personal projects. Those two figures add up to just over a million pounds. And the timing is such that it appeared in their accounts when we think the deal was done. Katie, there's obviously, by nature of a secret settlement, a lot in this story that we don't know. So what's the balance of judgments that you make in reporting this? On one hand, Prince William's entirely entitled to come to a privacy settlement with a national newspaper. Many would say that that's the system working well if the case doesn't go to court. But because it's secretive, we don't know what's in the settlement. We understand how much money we think he was given. And we have looked at the accounts for the Royal Foundation to try and understand if that money has gone there. But we can't be certain. But in fact, it's this very degree of secrecy that's so unhelpful because we're left not fully understanding what's been agreed and what it means for how the newspapers treat Prince William and how Prince William himself treats the newspapers. Stephen, can I ask you what you think of this? Because this one, I think you might think, okay, we're on slightly trickier ground. Within the UK, the idea that the future head of state has a private financial arrangement with the country's most powerful newspaper proprietor without necessarily disclosing it and therefore uh, perhaps being subject to terms of treatment in the press or commentary itself on the nature of the press seems quite important in the way in which the public square operates. But from a distance, do you look at this and think this is part of a royal drama that fascinates Brits but is not very important? Um, I'm, I'd be inclined to think that way, partly because it does seem like a fairly narrow uh, uh, 
transaction rather than an ongoing sweetheart deal. But also, let me, can I throw in something that's a, 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 a oblique association with this whole thing? And uh, but pardon me, from, this might sound off the wall. But what, what struck me was just the difference in scale between the uh, a supposed contribution to solving the climate crisis, which might seem significant. Wow, a million pounds. But um, I, I've just recently been reading about uh, from, from, from a, a, an insider about technologies for really dealing with climate change. Like there are about a hundred startups that are trying to develop a new generation of nuclear power that provide would provide abundant carbon-free um, energy without either emissions or the risk of a meltdown or fantastic construction costs. Their problem is that they need on the order of about a billion dollars of startup funds, and they're getting on the, the range of a, a million to, to 10 million. And so when I, and there are a hundred companies like this, and there are also companies for geothermal uh, storage of intermittent power for renewables. The amount of investment that they need to actually move the needle is, you know, t- three orders of magnitude higher than for a prize like this. So a whole <laughs> other dimension. And pardon me, I know this is a, something of a remote association, but just hearing a, a million dollar prize for climate, and I think this is just, it's, it's the wrong order of magnitude. Jess, what do you think of it? I think this is a good example of a story where a lot of the news media picks up on one thing and runs with it. And actually there's merit in looking at the smaller details in there that, yes, we may not be able to bring all the answers, but it gives you something to think about. It gives you some context to the world that we live in. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's go to Stephen's basic critique, because it's a chance for us to actually make a judgment on whether or not, overall, our take on the news is sufficiently thoughtful and precise about what matters in the world. 
Stephen, I don't love your idea of uh, news being only published every 50 years. <laughs> For very <laughs> personal and professional slow. A reasons. Slow. <laughs> a little too slow. And also, by the way, it puts the three of us out of a job. <laughs> I do think that journalism should be more uh, oriented to data rather than anecdotes to stories. That... Um, uh, that, that trends which can transform the world should themselves be treated as newsworthy. And even often an absence of trends, uh, an absence of stories can itself be, be a story, such as the fact that there are zero wars in the Western Hemisphere. Now, that's not a story. I mean, nothing is happening. The last event that made that true was the uh, signing of the peace agreement between Colombia and the FARC guerrillas uh, five, five years ago or so. Um, there's no war in Southeast Asia. When I was growing up, that would have been the biggest story imaginable. So some of the big events are things that don't happen, which are visible in data, because if you are counting the number of wars or number of wars per, per population, then that shows up. Um, and although I sometimes hear, well, people, <clears throat> they, they like images, they like narratives, they like uh, anecdotes, they, they, won't, they, they won't stand for data. But, you know, in the sports section, there are plenty of data. And you report the standings and you report the outcomes of games, whether they're whether the home team wins or loses. In the business section, there's lots of data, and it's it's not just when the stock market crashes that you have a story. Um, in you know, the weather, there's a section there's plenty of data. So could, could uh, crime and terrorism and carbon emissions uh, and and so on be continuously plotted in a kind of dashboard uh, where you um, see which way the world is going and which events move the needle one way or another. So that, that's one kind of way of thinking. Another is I, I, th there are some systemic reasons why the news is negatively biased. We've mentioned one of them, namely that if the, uh, uh, if the content consists of discrete events, it's easier for something to go wrong quickly and suddenly for, than for something to go right quickly and suddenly. Things that go right aren't built in a day and they will naturally tend to be gradual trends or, or non-events. So there's that built-in bias. Cynics say that the news panders to um, uh, gory, dramatic stories. If it bleeds, it leads as a kind of cynical way of getting eyeballs and clicks. And there might be some of that, but I think there's also, it's part of the ethic of journalism that um, Negative developments are news and positive developments are, you know, advertising or propaganda. It's like, you know, the Soviet Union advertising that, you know, production of pig iron has gone up in the five-year plan. There's a natural distrust of anything that might be positive. Um, partly it could be a misplaced um, um, morality or idealism that the point of journalism is to street, speak truth to power and that if journalism is touting what goes right, it's not really doing its job of goading the establishment. A slightly less charitable way of putting it is that society is divided among various uh, elites. There's uh, commerce, there's the military, there's religion, there's academia, there's journalism, and that there's constant jockeying for status among them. And journalists, uh, like academics, don't like to give credit to business people or diplomats or, 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 or government. That's a slightly more cynical view. But whether whichever of these uh, interpretations is correct, 
I think we should realize that there is a corrosive effect of uh, only reporting the disasters and the catastrophes, uh, namely that it can lead to a cynicism about our institutions, about liberal democracy, about the uh, criminal justice system, about international institutions, which can lead to a kind of uh, uh, radicalism. Uh, you put into power a strong man who, who says, only I can fix it, or a, t- a complete fatalism, uh, namely, why even bother? Things get worse and worse despite all of our efforts to make the world a better place. And we, we try to make the world better, but it just gets worse and worse and worse. So why don't we just enjoy ourselves? Jess, what do you make of that view that says maybe we should be telling the stories of trends or the even the absence of trends rather than so focused on the thing that just happened? I think using data and using trends is a very important part of any good news organization because they help you step back and they do help you see the big picture. I think it is impossible to run a newsroom solely based on data and trends because I think the heart of a story comes from talking to people and seeing how those trends play out in real life, how they actually impact. I think that's where you get the emotional connection to a story that make people care about it in a real way and help it travel. So I don't think you can have one without the other. Stephen, I suspect that everyone will agree with you about the corrosive effect of a negativity bias. There was one thing that you said, and Katie, I'd be interested to know what your view on this is, about a sense of ourselves as journalists speaking truth to power. And that really chimed with me. I definitely think that one of the jobs of journalism is to hold to account. And that, of course, means that you're focused on problems or you're focused on things that haven't been disclosed or need mending or fixing. Katie, what do you think about that, that instinct that we've got to zero in on those issues and as a result of it portray perhaps a, or not perhaps, a partial view of what's happening in the world and what's happening with people working in key institutions? I think if you're going to speak truth to power, then the way to do that is still going to be the human stories over the bigger trends and the and the data and i i can see that if we need to sit back and realize that over a long period of time the picture might be slightly different but for the people at the heart of the the story that the news story that might be leading the news that day it won't feel we none of us live our lives like we're going to see ourselves in the pages of a history book in x many years time we're living in the moment and that's where the emotion that comes from and the passion comes from even if it's the more and those are the things we remember in our own lives and on a global scale are the more negative stories they're the ones that cut through so if we're going to speak truth to power run stories that really matter then i think the the only way to do that is to is to have the human angle even if it is more negative yes I've spent a lot of my career covering foreign news, so sort of that even more so than UK stories, I think, tends to lean towards the disasters and catastrophes that Stephen talked about earlier. And it's something that I have struggled with over the years. And a big part of my job was trying to find the light, trying to find the joy that encapsulates the whole human experience around the world that I I really do believe is there and should all be reported on. Um, And I think the the tendency to just think that everything's going wrong and that you can't find positivity um, uh, is real um, and that you do need to cover a a wide range of stories and 
not always just a go on attack system all the time as a journalist. Just going back to that trends point, I just wanted to say that, you know, the it's important to recognize that there are counter stories to the trends. You might see violence going down worldwide, and that is a fantastic story. But go to Ukraine or go to Libya or go to Syria and tell me that we shouldn't be telling those stories. And I wouldn't agree. I think we have to. No, the, the, well, the thing, that, that's the thing about trends, that when you report them, you report them whichever way they go, whether they go up or they go down. And of course, it's going to be true by definition that if you select the most dangerous parts of the world, they're going to be dangerous. That, that, that's what it means to select the most dangerous part of the world. And the, and the news is tends to be a highly non-random sample of the worst things that happen. Now, of course, no one can argue that you don't report them. Of course, they have to report them. But I think they have to be reported in the context of uh, which way the world is going, how many uh, ongoing wars there are. And indeed, it is true that because of the war in Ukraine and the uh, other war that was much less reported, namely the civil war in uh, Ethiopia with the Tigray uh, rebels, uh, probably more casualties than the war in Ukraine. But the trend went in the wrong direction. Uh, in, in 2022, deaths from war went up, and, and that has to be reported too, uh, precisely so that we can realize this truly is a big deal. Now, it hasn't brought us back to the levels of the 1980s, the 1970s, but it is a turn in the wrong direction, and, and that's significant as well. Listen, I'm going to try and pull things together just at the end of this uh, news meeting, which I have found really interesting. I do find the point about speaking truth to power really thought-provoking. In fact, I also think the issue of how do you report events versus judgment on developments, how do you marry those things, and how do you package those, Stephen, in a way in which conforms to the ways by which people interpret and understand the world. There's a lot to think about in that. Within the confines of the news meeting, i.e. what story, what running order would you have, I would also throw in for what it's worth this week that in the UK... The UK Prime Minister has made some very significant, at least in signalling terms, changes to our climate commitments. And these are around the date at which we move from uh, petrol vehicles, from internal combustion engine uh, vehicles to electric ones, 2030 to 2035. And this was a really extraordinary decision to play to... Um, cost of living politics versus climate change politics, young politics versus old politics. Um, and it's hard not to think that in so many ways, that is the story that when people look back at the weekend in 22nd of September in the UK, will be the one that they will want to unpack and understand. That said, of the two stories, I think that I have to confess, even though we ran the investigation into William and Rupert uh, and Katie, you and Paul have been working on that for quite some time, you know, deep in all those court documents. I think that is a story that gives context to the way in which both Fleet Street and um, the palace works. But the story that leads in so many directions is the story that Jess suggested, the story of the murder in Surrey and the implications that has for Canada-India relations, for understanding Trudeau, for beginning to understand Modi, and quite fascinatingly for the responses of London and Washington. And so for that reason, I'd probably lead uh, with uh, Jess's story. Um, but more importantly, I suspect, the thing that people listening, certainly I have, 
taken away from this is it forces us to think about the idea of new judgment altogether. And for that, Stephen Pinker, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, join us and be at this Tortoise News meeting. Most importantly, if you listen to the Tortoise News meeting, you will have heard that we often play in either voicemails or emails from people who say, look, you've got this wrong, actually, this is the story that should lead the news, or you've picked the wrong end of the story. It's so interesting to us, either in terms of reading it out on air or just forcing us to rethink the priorities that we bring to news. Please do that. It's simple, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. You can't help but enjoy the irony that on the day that we invite Stephen Pinker to join us for the news meeting and tell us that we're all too much of a hurry, too much caught up in the moment in news, that halfway through a pitch about News Corp, the chairman of News Corp, stands down and therefore forces to think, is news the thing that just happened? I suspect that there is going to be a lot of talk about Rupert Murdoch leaving News Corporation and quite a lot of interest in Lachlan, his son, taking over. If you're a succession watcher and you're like, which one is he? Well, Kendall, I think, is most closely James, Roman, Lachlan, and Shiv Elizabeth. Um, of course, they morphed during the course of the series. But really, the judgment over the next few days will be understanding Murdoch and they are different stories in different countries. Obviously, I was the editor of the time, so worked for his company, News Corporation, and with him. Um, there'll be judgments on what he did in Australia, what he did in the UK, and considerably, given the politics of the United States and Fox Television, what he's done to the nature of journalism, the understanding of fact, and the politicization of the news. And if you have watched Succession, you'll know it's difficult to disentangle the personal from the business. Um, I suppose I feel the same way too. There'll be time to get back to that in next week's news meeting. And just to show you, Stephen, that we can see the good in the world, this week has also marked a rapprochement a French word, which I don't know exactly what it means, but I think it's something good, between the UK and France. First, Keir Starmer went to go and see Emmanuel Macron, the French president, and then uh, King Charles uh, went, uh, not only had a very big uh, dinner, but also spoke to the French Senate. Uh, we leave you with the sound of le roi. Je crois uh, que c'est un roi français qui a dit un jour qu'il préférerait être boucheron even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.